You're listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. One of the major concerns most of us have is for the amount of violence, and especially war, that seems to cover the globe. Domestic and gang violence, domestic and foreign terrorism, ethnic conflicts and wars, international conflicts and wars. A component of the issue is how to address the violence. Many feel that violence is inevitable and that the only way to meet violence is with violence. Our culture in the United States even seems to glorify justified violence done in defense of our nation. Our heroes are war heroes and combat heroes. The issue is complex, but there are a growing number of voices that are advocating for an alternative It's called just peacemaking. As one approach to the argument goes from a Christian perspective, just war theory has always advocated for violence as a last result, so that just peacemakers argue too often violence occurs way too early in the process, that more effort should be given to just peacemaking efforts, which are being found effective. And that, should be, and that peacemaking efforts should be employed much more extensively before violence is resorted to. Peacemaking seems to reduce violence when it occurs, but also, more importantly, it seems to head off violence from even occurring to begin with. There are many different approaches and efforts being developed by institutions, by nonprofits, by religious communities, to name just a few, that are working on peacemaking methods, resources, and projects. One such project was a book and a one-day symposium developed by Dr. Ephraim Omar and Dr. Michael Duffy from Marquette University. The symposium was held in October of 2013, and the book was published in 2015. The title of the book is Peacemaking and the Challenge of Violence in World Religions. The title acknowledges that religion has been a major contributing factor in much of history's violence and war. What the book does is to examine resources and the role of peacemaking in seven religions. Each chapter treats a religion and is written by not only a scholar of that religion, but particularly a practitioner of that religion. I'm hoping that this interview will be the first of a series relating to the book. From my perspective, one of the arguments of postmodern thinking is that the limitations and inadequacy of Enlightenment concepts, which supported the arrogance and supposed superiority of colonialism, has been demonstrated to be very inadequate. There is the recognition that much knowledge and wisdom was lost from conquered peoples due to that arrogance. And so in a way, consequently, one of the apparent goals of postmodern scholarship has been a renaissance of sorts. Like the first renaissance, there was an effort, there is an effort of recovery and rediscovery of ancient knowledge and wisdom, this time not from classical culture, but from indigenous cultures. So my guest today is Dr. Tink Tinker. He is a member of the, and am I saying it right, Wazazi? Osage Nation? Okay. Uh, He has a bachelor's degree from New Mexico Highlands University, a Master of Divinity degree from Pacific Lutheran, and a PhD from a graduate theological union. He's an ordained Lutheran minister, although he says he does not identify as Christian now. Uh, But he is also Professor Emeritus at the United Methodist School of Illith School of Theology in Denver. Uh, He's taught there since 1975, where he taught courses in American Indian cultures, history and religious traditions, cross-cultural and third world theologies, and justice and peace studies. Upon his retirement, uh, an endowment was set up in his honor, uh, the Tinker Program Endowment. I'll let you speak on that a little bit, uh, if you like to, later on. So welcome, uh, Tink. Uh, Thank you greatly for being uh, a guest on my show. Pleasure to be with you, David. And if you uh, wouldn't mind, kind of begin with your own personal journey. 
especially as that has led you into the career and the teaching that you do, uh, and that it has led you to the contribution you made to the book. Well, the, one of the results of uh, colonialism is that the American Indian world is filled with what, what the U.S. government calls mixed bloods. That is, we're of mixed parentage. My mother, for instance, is Lutheran and Norwegian. And my father was the American Indian. So that I grew up with both heritages in my family and then spent a great deal of my early adulthood trying to figure out exactly who I was uh, in order to deal with the questions that kept coming up in my mind. I, I, I decided I had to do what actually Vine Deloria did. I had to go to seminary and, and learn about Christianity from the inside out. And so I did my master's degree and a PhD uh, in, in, in Christian theology. Uh, at the same time, uh, you know, I became ordained in my mother's church, the Lutheran church. And I thought that was my identity and that was my career. But the more I began to pay attention to my father's culture, the more I realized that, that I really needed to spend more time with that and take it more seriously, especially given the kind of Christian theology I'd been studying, which had a strong liberationist uh, liberal bent, that I had to deal with my own Indian people, Osage people, as the, the poorest of the poor in North America. And so I did that. And the more I did that, the more I realized, you know, that Christian culture, I call it Euro-Christian, doesn't quite mesh with American Indian cultures. That the languages are so different that the baseline worldview is so different that I couldn't hold both intention. I think for me, the, uh, the crisis point was when I finished writing my uh, published 1993 published book, Missionary Conquest, The Gospel on American Indian Genocide. When I finished that book, I found it, by the way, a depressing book to write because every chapter turned out with the same ending, with Christian missionaries, with good intentions on one, to a certain extent, good intentions on their part, bringing their good news into the Indian world, but ultimately so radically changing Indian people that it became culturally genocidal for Indian people to do that. Uh, and, and at the end of and I was writing about four classic missionaries who were among the best Catholic and Protestant missionaries from reading, you know, the, 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 the mission history materials. But they all ultimately severely damaged the peoples that came to preach this gospel to. Uh, and ultimately, at the end of writing that book, I had to tell Indian people here in Denver where I was serving as uh, you know, a spiritual leader and, and initially as uh, Indian Christian minister, I had to tell them, that I could no longer call myself a Christian and from that day forward would not do so. Uh, I'd also begun in you know, training myself by going out to reservations and talking to traditional elders and learning what they had to say 
learning about the old traditional world and the traditional language base of Indian people. Went out to different reservations, but one reservation I spent a lot of time at was the Lakota Reservation, uh, a, a community of people that are closely related to the Osage or Wajaji uh, people. And it was at that point that it became clear to me that holding, trying to hold Christianity in tension with traditional ways probably could not really be done in an authentic way without bastardizing one or the other. And unfortunately, what always gets bastardized is American Indian culture. Uh, I wrote an, an essay oh, a few years ago, about the same time I wrote this essay for uh, Nonviolence in World Religions, which tackled the question of creation. And you know, I told the editor I couldn't write about American Indian creation because we don't have that word in our languages. And unfortunately, he didn't take the hint, and he convinced me that that would be a great essay if I wrote about that. Uh, so I did, titled, Why I Don't Believe in a Creator. Because as soon as I believe in a creator, I've immediately adopted the Euro-Christian perspective uh, and worldview and introduced a hierarchical supreme being which doesn't exist in any Indian culture or Indian language or Indian stories until the missionaries come and radically reinterpret our stories in order to bring us into line with their own Euro-Christian perspective. Well, th that hierarchy ends up destroying any hope for maintaining a traditional Indian perspective because our cultures are not hierarchical at all. Rather, they're egalitarian. So we don't have a supreme being until the missionaries name it. For Osages, that word is Wakanda, not to be confused with the ripoff for the African American movie by the name Wakanda, which uses our word, but in an entirely different context. Wakanda never meant supreme being, God the Heavenly Father, creator of all life. Rather, it's much more egalitarian. It's that universal creative energy that courses through everyone, everywhere. And by everyone, I mean to include uh, the animals, uh, the trees, the grass, the water, the rivers, and, and even, even the rocks as sentient, you know, sentient life forms. So if, if I, as soon as I say Wakanda is the creator of all life, I put that Wakanda above all of life and suddenly we're in a hierarchical structure. Well, that never worked before as one traditional Indian scholar here in the Denver area says, in the Indian world, there are no bosses, no, no preacher to tell you this is what you should believe, no, no governor to tell you this is the law, you need to obey it, no president, no pope, no CEO of a corporation. See, the whole of the Euro-Christian world is filled with that kind of hierarchy. It's the most natural thing in the world for my Euro-Christian relatives, for my mother's people. But, but for Indian people traditionally, that was never the case.
And of course, as soon as I say that, your Christian theologians, one of them in an audience is going to raise their hand during the Q&A and say, ah, but Tink, you had chiefs. And I look back for half a second and say, yeah, but we were better than that. In our egalitarian structure, every Osage village had not one, but two of these people you call a chief. And they took turns every other day being in charge, like having Hillary Clinton on Mondays and Donald Trump on Tuesdays. <laughs> And when they're done laughing, I can explain that neither one of them had authoritarian power, that that was invented by Hollywood and by government functionaries who needed someone in authority to speak to in order to steal our land. Yeah, the job of the Gallega was first of all, to reflect back to the community, the consensus of the whole. And it's only in that post-colonial moment that, that when, when, when our lands are being taken and our people are being broken apart, the bands form around the personal leadership of one or another uh, of these so-called leaders. So that's what eventually pried me loose pried me loose from Christianity I decided there's no way that I could continue to be a Christian Indian pastor without becoming exactly the kind of missionary participating in the cultural genocide of Indian people that I wrote back about in my book, Missionary Conquest. That gives you a, a rundown of how I ended up where I am. Okay. And then uh, how was it that you were invited to be a part of the symposium in the book? Well, I don't know. You'd have to ask Omar and Michael about that. Okay. Uh, you know, I, I think they were they were serious about bringing together people from uh, what they call world religions. Uh, of course, the, the initial problem is Indian people don't have religion. Well, yeah, I, I want to get into that in just a little bit. Um... That's a word that comes from, you know, the Euro-Christian colonizer. But I, I agreed to do that conference after I clarified that point with them, and they thought it'd be okay if I did that. So yeah, your the title of your article is the uh, irrelevance of Euro-Christian dichotomies for indigenous peoples beyond violence to a vision of cosmic balance. And you begin your article with a couple of quotes uh, that try to dispel the perception that American Indians were and have always been a warrior people. Uh, That's right. So talk about that some for us. Well, it, you know, I, the, the missionaries came in and while they had good intentions on the one hand, they had genocidal intentions on the other because they did intend, fully intended, to radically change our cultures. In that, they were absolutely in sync with the governments, the colonial governments, the you know, pre-revolutionary American uh, colonial governments, the United States government, and the government of Canada, Etc. Uh, and all the academics who played hand in hand with the missionaries and the government. So that was the job of the academics to look at Indian people and interpret our cultures 
as something they already knew in Europe. And what they already knew in Europe is human beings kill each other. It's a long history of that in Europe. See, even as uh, the first colonizers came to North America, uh, in the United States around 1620, uh, 1605, uh, 1607 for Jamestown. But from 1618 on, for 30 years, Europe was immersed in such a terrible war that they killed, we're told, 11 million of each other simply in order to determine whether it was the Protestant or the Catholic interpretation of the salvific death of Jesus that would rule the continent. So they took that image of warfare and superimposed it on Indian people when in fact, we never had that kind of warfare. So it's a, you know, the, the notion of Indian people as a warrior society is a lie. Pure and simple. It's invented. And I can demonstrate by looking at a number of different cultures that, uh, uh, that, that our military conflicts with one another might result in no deaths or only one death. If any Osage military unit going out to defend our boundaries suffered the loss of one young man, the whole group was prevented on their return from re-entering the village. They had to camp outside of the village until two of the old men, the Nongien, went out to query them. What in the world happened? You weren't supposed to come back having lost a life. I mean, this is the savage, bloodthirsty warrior culture that the textbooks talk about. One life was so important that the rest of the contingent could not re-enter the village. Uh, and I've looked at uh, Lakota winter counts, and one winter count in particular, uh, they would go four years in between any loss of life that might be associated with warfare. And it's not clear that the others are, but even those others, it was the year one person died, or the year one enemy was killed, or the year that two people or three people were killed. Um, but it's never clear uh, you know, what the warfare was those years, they're named, each one in a winter count is named after the most important event of that year. Never clear that it was named after a war event. And you're talking besides in terms of the death of one or two or four. In one celebrated incident, you know, the numbers go up, but they go up radically after the invasion of your Christians, after the loss of land and the killing of Indians, the numbers go radically higher. But, but they never get quite as high as the numbers of Indians killed by your Christian armies. Even the U.S. Census Bureau in the year 1900 could only count some 5,000 white people who were killed by Indians during the Indian Wars. Phenomenal low number for a warrior, bloodthirsty, savage society, isn't it? You're right. Well, you talk about, by extension, that just as the Indian culture doesn't have the concept of war that then by extension 
notions of nonviolence uh, don't make any sense either. Um, well, nonviolence emerges in your Christian consciousness, I think, in direct result of the kind of violence that colonialism caused, the death and dying that colonialism generated, and the kind of death and dying that happened in uh, intra-European warfare uh, even before colonialism. Well, uh, go ahead. Sorry, I lost my train of thought that fast. <laughs> That's okay. Well, then you, you talk then about uh, uh, the idea of violence and nonviolence being particularly anthropocentric. Um, and that doesn't uh, fit in with the uh, Indian categories uh, relating to, as you had said a little bit earlier, of, of all matter being sentient. Sure, sure. The, the truth is that violence and nonviolence are categories that don't make sense in an Indian world. But because Indian people are clear that we cannot live through one day without committing acts of violence against our relatives. I mean, I cannot sit down and eat a meal without understanding in some sort of really important spiritual way, I've taken the life of a buffalo to eat this meal. I've taken the life of the corn. I've taken the life of beans and squash in order to nourish myself. And we have to do that. And you refer to those as relatives. Absolutely. Well, beans, corn, and squash are called through the heart of the American continent by Indian people, the three sisters. They're incredibly important. Uh, in the Southwest, uh, corn is called the corn mother, the mother of all human beings. In fact, that pertains across the South and up the uh, eastern seaboard. Uh, corn mother is, is, is the mother of, of, all of all of life, not just corn, but human beings as well and, and, and the rest of life. Um, I used to have a classroom argument, debate with a Buddhist colleague. And we would repeat it because students enjoyed it every year in one class or another. My friend, uh, Dr. Cabazon, was a Tibetan monk at one point in his life and treats Buddhism from that perspective. And, and and practices it as a vegetarian because as he interprets the Buddhist texts, they don't want to do harm to any sentient being. And my comeback in the classroom when it was my turn to speak would start with asking Professor Cabezon, what is it about corn? that leads you to think that it is not a sentient being. It's our mother. It's one of the three sisters. It's a close relative. It nourishes our people. Of course it's sentient. And of course, we have to eat in order to nourish ourselves. For Indian people then, the point is not nonviolence. The point is how to mitigate the violence, how to bring the world back into peace, harmony, balance. After any military conflict or after any meal when we have to eat our relatives. So the Washaji Osage people there was a 13-day ceremony that had to be performed in a village before the people could send out defenders to defend the village, to defend 
our borders against some people who were making an incursion into our territory. 13 days. We're told that it was virtually the same ceremony that had to be performed three times a year before that same village could go out on a hunting expedition to kill buffalo to nourish the people. Phenomenal, isn't it? Yes, it is. Well, then, so you talked about mitigation uh, and that ceremony plays a, an important role in that. Uh, maintaining balance at ceremony is, is uh, very important. As a part well, it of consecrates the lives of, of all those who will be killed or any who will be killed, but particularly our buffalo relatives when we go out to hunt buffalo, because we know that, that the village is going to need 40 or 50 buffalo in order to survive through the year. That's you know, a lot of animals that we have to harvest each year. We talked about ceremony not being a category of religion or worship, but a structured way of building and maintaining relationships, especially cosmic relationships. Yeah, that's a wonderful point. A wonderful point. Ceremony is just a way of living life. And we have structured ways of doing that when it's clear that we were going to have to engage in behavior that is very disruptive uh, of the cosmic balance, like a, like you know a buffalo hunt or, or or defending the borders. But 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 it's true, even in living in the village, because the village has to be held in the same balance as the cosmic whole does. So our villages were divided between uh, north and south, between sky people and earth people. Uh, and at that point, uh, those who live across the road from one another are in clans that are in different divisions, sky or earth. And yet we have ways of maintaining harmony, balance, and unity, even at that moment of division. Putting the lie, for instance, to uh, uh, Levi Strauss and, and his armchair conundrum, how can people be divided and united at the same time? Well, that's easy, because every Earth Division person had to cross the road to find a mate on the other side of the road. So every sky person had to come find a mate on the earth division so that the two are brought together by interrelationship in important ways at that moment. We even slept earth people on their right shoulders sky people on their left shoulders so that the two faced one another even at night maintaining that unity. We talk about balance as a reciprocal dualism. What does that mean? Well, uh, that's what I call it. Barbara Mann calls it the principle of twinship. Everything has to be paired. It's not that classic Christian dualism of antagonism, good versus evil, night versus day, light versus dark. You know, for us, it's just the opposite. There has to be both in order for there to be a whole. So when people ask me to name a supreme being, for, for Indian people, for Osages. I'm at a loss because the first thing you've got to do is pick a gender. Which gender are you going to pick? And, and 
in my response to uh, feminist theologians who wanted to make, you know, that supreme being female, uh, that won't work because it's the same hierarchy, just reproduced uh, under the aegis of, of a feminine principle instead of a masculine principle. No, for us, it has to be both. So when, when I pray, I'm, I was taught as a young man by an uncle uh, to pray Wakonda Monshita. Ski Wakonda Utseta. The energy from above, the Wakonda above, and the Wakonda below, or the energy below, grandfather and grandmother, and only when we've summoned in both is there the possibility of that reciprocal dualism that creates harmony and balance. On the other hand, Indian people never had that Euro-Christian Manichaeism of good versus evil. There was no evil. In Osage, we're told the worst thing you could say about someone or something is Fiji. It's a word I use when I walk my dog every time she tries to go into people's private gardens. Biji. Bad dog, bad girl. Biji songe. Biji songe. That's as bad as it gets. What about evil in the world? Well, there was no evil until the missionaries came and reinterpreted our stories. That's Barbara Mann's book, The uh, Seneca Woman you mentioned earlier, uh, Iroquoian Women. The missionaries came and reinterpreted our stories in order to impose upon Indian people their understanding of good versus evil. Suddenly, Indians had good versus evil. But it's a, it's, it really is, again, if I can use that word, a bastardization of Indian culture and absolutely destroys the, the, the foundational notion of harmony and balance that is at the center of our existence. You had uh, talked in the article uh, pretty extensively uh, about the basic worldview differences uh, between Euro-Christian and the indigenous cultures. Uh, and you listed four points in particular. Uh, radical individualism versus communityism, Manichaean monism versus reciprocal dualism, foundational temporality versus foundational perceptions of spatiality place and land and then the one you felt uh, more the most important is the up-down image schema and hierarchies versus egalitarian collateral image schema that's right so talk about those things yeah let me just talk around them a little bit first of all christian europe uh, has some fundamental individualism early on, but especially at the time of the Reformation and Renaissance, individualism becomes the most important characteristic within the culture of Europe, of Euro-Christian Europe. When you think about Luther, justification by faith, that really is Renaissance radical individualism. It's you and me, God. I don't know about everyone else, but I'm okay. I'm justified by faith. For Indian people, it's always about the community. 
my salvation isn't nearly, isn't important at all. It's the well-being, the security of the whole community. And the whole community can be the village, the clan, or, or it can be the whole of the earth in this place. That's more important than whether I'm going to some place called heaven rather than some other place called hell, you know, good and evil again, in that you're a Christian mindset. You know, we're communityists, word I created, because communism had already been taken in, in some other Euro-Christian uh, format. Uh, and make no mistake about it, communism is a Euro-Christian philosophy. Even if it's an ideology, most American Euro-Christians despise or don't adhere to. Yeah, for us, it's communityism. And by community, we mean, first of all, the local community. It starts here. There is no overall governing structure in some capital far away where some great white father lives who controls our lives and what we can do. It's all done right here in our ceremonies, in our meetings, in our dances, in our stories, in our daily day-to-day -day life. That, that, that got lost once hierarchy and individualism had been introduced. You know, another important difference is this business of temporality versus spatiality. Traditionally, we were spatial people, not temporal at all. I'm sure we, we, we knew that the moon had a cycle of so many days. We, we knew that the seasons come and go. We knew that it might be a little bit before so-and-so comes back to our meeting because he left momentarily to go ask uh, his wife a question and he can't proceed without his wife's answer. But the important thing is space. That's the primordial category. Where we are, the territory that we have, the four directions into which we can look and expect different gifts from the energies that come from those four directions. Very different from the temporality of the Euro-Christian world, which is predicated, first of all, on you know the uh, eschatological uh, imagination of the end times or what happens after death, whether I'm saved or not as an individual, uh, whether I'm growing in the faith as, a, as an individual again. Uh, so we don't have a periodic weekly ceremony that is the Lord's Day, if you will. But we do ceremony whenever we need ceremony, whenever the people need it. And even ceremonies around the moon cycle or the sun cycle, you know, solstice or new moon, have to do with the relationship between that relative Huitzikomi, me the sun, and where we are on the earth. The relationship between the moon and where we are on the earth. So that spatiality determines everything. Uh, so our ceremonies don't depend upon some clock. You know, worship services at 8 and 11 o'clock, Sunday school at 
Rather, our ceremonies are determined by where we're going to do it and what the shape is of the place where we're going to do it. So we may create a circle very often, may have uh, gates to each of the four directions to mark the directions, or, or a iungli, sitting with the stones ceremony. We'll have a, a door to the lodge facing the east, depending on which division is is doing the ceremony, the door might face to the west instead of to the east. Critically important, spatiality. And more important than time. You had used the term relating to a circle in your preparation for this interview. Talk to me a little bit about that. Well, Christian symbols that I am most aware of, symbols like the triangle standing for the Trinity, have sharp angles, points, have hierarchies in them. For Indian people, the, the universe is circular. Everything is in that circle. So yeah, we might form a circle to have ceremony, but ultimately we know that everything in the universe is in that circle somewhere. That man we call Gallega, old man who uh, white people call a chief is in that circle. His newborn baby is in that circle. Maybe right in that circle ahead of the chief because there's no beginning and no end to that circle. There's no top dog. Every tree is in that circle, every buffalo, every mouse every stone, and somewhere in that circle, I find my place, and my job is to maintain that unity of the whole. So I've got a 10-year-old daughter, and I have to coach her. You can't just randomly pick up rocks when you go out to the beach. You have to have a reason to pick up each rock and to remove it from its home. When I uh, gave a keynote address to the United Methodist General Conference, I don't know, two or 3,000 people were for this conference in Tampa, Florida, uh, seven years ago. They finished with a liturgy where they had filled the center aisle with uh, softball-sized stones from the nearby Tampa River and asked everyone to come and take one of those stones and use that stone to form their commitment to uh, whatever they were being asked to commit to that night and take it home. And somebody saw me uh, lingering behind everyone else. And I guess I had an armload of stones. I probably had 15 of them in my arms. And they laughed and said, how are you going to get all those back to Denver? I said, Denver? They don't live in Denver. I'm taking them out to put them back in the river. That's where they belong. That's where they live. That's what I mean by maintaining the circle of balance and harmony. Well, you had talked about um, then, you know, hierarchy is, is often at the root of violence. 
that uh, those that consider themselves superior are the ones that propagate violence against others. And that the uh, change to, as you talk about the expansion uh, to egalitarian collateral image schemas changes the moral ethics of our thinking. Yeah, Indian people weren't obsessed with that sense that somehow my community is better than any other community. Yeah, the Pawnee may have done something that damaged an Osage village. And for that, we call them Pawnee Biji. Yeah, bad pony, bad. But, but then the man living in the lodge next to me may have crossed a line with his women and treated them unfairly. And he's also Nikabiji, a bad man. Biji, bad. But to pass judgment on a whole group of people, that's, I think, part of the reason that Indian people didn't just kill Euro Christians when they came to us. We didn't have the wherewithal to see them as invaders because we had no imagination, no experience of that kind of invasion or that kind of violence that would be perpetrated against us. At Jamestown, it was that treaty feast in 1621, where the English, the Christians, after signing a treaty with the Pahan Indians, held a big feast and served them poisoned wine and killed, we're told, a couple hundred. Mm. Mm. Or, or the next year in Wessagusset, where uh, in Wessagusset, where the pilgrims decided that in order to teach the Indians a lesson. They needed to invite some of their chiefs to come to Plymouth and have a feast with them and put each chief in a different cabin and then sent uh, their military contingent. Miles Standish was their commanding military officer. First to one cabin and then to the next to murder those chiefs in succession, behead them, and post their heads on, on staffs outside the entrances to Plymouth Village. It was inconceivable to Indian people. We had no experience of that. You know, our, our primary instinct is hospitality. And if there's a second most important job for the Osage Gallego or chief, it was hospitality. So that in all nations, the so-called chief had to have resources at hand because that person was responsible for feeding any strangers who came into the village and came to his lodge. So in moving forward, what can we as non-American Indians do to learn from you and what kind of practices can we acquire and do? that learn from you? 
Well, I've always told my students, it's a long shot. It takes a lot of hard work to do this because it means changing some of the deepest held beliefs of the Euro-Christian world. It, it means a slow shift in the culture, but that slow shift in the culture begins with individuals and groups of Euro-Christians making ideological decisions to live ideologically in a different way. One doesn't change one's worldview. That's too deeply embedded in the language, in the practice, in the upbringing. But ideologies can begin to point towards a worldview change which happens only generationally. So we're looking at making plans for generations down the line, hoping that some of these values that Indian people have practiced, first of all, won't be lost by Indian people under continuing colonialism. But secondly, and most importantly, will be recognized and adopted by our Euro-Christian relatives so that we can eventually find a way to live in harmony and balance and peace, not just with each other, but with all our relatives on this earth. I say it's a long shot because most of my Euro-Christian students find that deeply appealing until I ask them, how are you going to preach this in a congregation in Colorado Springs where you have four retired generals and six retired colonels sitting in the audience? in the congregation. How are you going to convince the military industrial complex that this is the way to live and to plan for the future? How are you going to begin to change that political hole that is so deeply committed to the capitalist system and the possibility uh, of the individual uh, accretion of wealth. How do we go from there to making sure everyone, everyone is fed? That's the hard part. That's what will take many, many generations. And I hope that that will serve as the basis for an ongoing conversation with you and me. Well, I look forward to that, David. I would like that. And I know my audience would as well. I am deeply grateful uh, for the time that you've given uh, for this. Uh, and talk a little bit, just in parting, about the uh, Tinker Program Endowment? Well, my fear is I brought my career to a close at Isla School of Theology as an American Indian teaching in a Christian seminary is that it would be too easy to forget Tink Tinker, to forget what I taught for those 30 plus years and to go back to doing business as usual. So I convinced a number of people at ILF that we needed to raise money to begin an endowment to ensure that something of what I taught continues to get taught. 
in my long-term ultimate goal. However uh, impractical it proves to be, is for ILF to raise enough money to establish uh, a permanent professorship for an American Indian scholar, an activist scholar who does the kinds of things I've done uh, into the future for the next 100 years or however long ILF uh, continues. And people have responded pretty well. Uh, well, if they want to respond, how can they? What do they uh, by funneling contributions to Isla School of Theology, the Tinker Endowment. It's that simple, the Tinker Endowment. Okay. And that would be wonderful. We're going to have a big fundraising this October. In fact, we're bringing uh, Barbara Mann, among others, to uh, Isla for this week. Uh, as a lecturer, the Seneca scholar I mentioned earlier, it's going to be a great event. Well, I hope that goes well, and I hope the project is successful. Dahli, thank you for that. <laughs> well, thank you once again, and we will speak again, if you're willing. I look forward to it, David. All right. Well, you have been listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. Most people don't know that from their beginnings, Baptists have believed that in order to have the freedom given by God in Christ, and in order for the church to be obedient to Christ's ministry, there must be a separation of church and state. So at the beginning of our nation, Baptists were active in advocating for that separation to be included in our founding documents and laws. Ever since, Baptists, especially through the establishment of the Baptist Joint Committee, have monitored government activity related to religious freedom. Religious freedom has always found ongoing issues and conflicts, but those conflicts have increased with the decline of Christian dominance and the expansion of other-than-Christian voices and political influence. The result is great confusion about the boundaries of religious liberty and its relationship to government. To help us understand more clearly and accurately this situation, my next guest is Melissa Rogers. Her experience with the Baptist Joint Committee and in working with the Obama administration on the cooperation of faith communities and government has given her the wisdom to guide us. She has written a book titled Faith in American Public Life. This book will provide the context for our conversation. It is a vital subject in our culture presently, so you'll want to tune in and you'll want to purchase her book. The music for this episode comes from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come that is on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and used by permission by the Porter's Gate Work Project. You can purchase the album and learn more about the worship project by going to the website theportersgate.com. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening. And for your support, blessings. May the words from my mouth speak your peace.